0: Father, please uh, grant a blessing to us through the study tonight. We will hear of things to come that are disturbing for us, things that we couldn't imagine enduring, and thankfully we'll not have to, but Father, someone will. And we pray, Father, that you'll help us understand the purpose in these things, help us understand how they turn to good in your economy and how it brings ultimately all things to the proper end. Let us uh, take them soberly, but also, Father, with a heart to receive what you have prepared for us and for them. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We finished the first six judgments that Jesus has begun to bring upon the earth as part of the seven-year tribulation. The seal judgments have begun. And before we get into the next wave of the judgments that are coming, uh, I typically do this, and you know I like to go back and revisit the timeline and just spend a, a minute or two Uh, reorienting ourselves so we know what we've done and where we're going. So tonight, let's begin with a slide you've seen from weeks past. We're not going to talk on it very long. Just to remind you, though, that we're looking in this particular part of our study, we're looking at the period called Tribulation that corresponds to Daniel's 70th 7. So chapters 6 through 19 of Revelation, all of those chapters talk about that one little slice of time that seven-year period that we're still waiting for to see culminate the time of the age of the Gentiles. And that little slice, the the period sometimes known as Jacob's troubles, or as we say it, tribulation, that time of judgment was appointed for Israel as part of the Old Covenant. And so we are now spending our time on this aspect of the study, from here on until at least chapter 19. And we got into this, if you remember, looking at the end times uh, and some of the signs that the Bible gives us about what's coming. Uh, Jesus said it would include wars and earthquakes and uh, famines, things that happen today but will be happening at a greater level as we get increasingly close to the tribulation. And they are signs that we are near the end. We saw that we're kind of in the period of that already. Uh, and the church itself will come to an end somewhere in that time frame as well. And then at some point, a covenant is signed in the tribulation begins. And that's where we began to dive in, to the time of tribulation. So over the last two weeks, we've been looking at this period, as we call it, tribulation. And so far, we've been looking at the first wave of what will ultimately be three waves of judgment that define this period of seven years. Here's what we have got through the last couple of weeks. It started with seal judgments. And We don't mean the marine type of seal, we mean a wax seal on a parchment scroll. And as Jesus began to break the seven seals that sealed up this scroll, each one of them resulted in something happening on earth. Remember the first four of those, depicted there by horses, they represent the stages of an unveiling of the Antichrist to the world. How he ascends to greater authority, greater power, how he triggers wars that then lead to widespread death and devastation with the consequence ultimately ultimately being that he is responsible for some 2 billion people dying, one-fourth of the earth's population in this great war that comes about. Now, all of those events seem, to the earth anyway, to be purely human-driven. They don't look supernatural. They look like what every war must look like, just on a new scale. But in what we read concerning those events, there was a suggestion that the land of Israel is being spared, at least from these initial war-induced disasters. Don't harm the oil or the wine, Jesus said, which I think is a reference to the land of Israel. And that would seem to be related to the events of chapter 7, which is what we did part of last week, and the breaking of the fifth seal, which was the souls under the altar. So as you see at the bottom of that chart, uh, in chapter 7, we learn that even as the Antichrist embarks on his little journeys, And his rise to power. At the same time, the Lord is at work bringing 144,000 Jewish men to faith right at the outset of tribulation. And he calls them to faith so that they may serve him in reaching the world with the gospel. So, even as the Antichrist is bringing wave after wave of calamity uh, initiated by the Lord in heaven, bringing these judgments, nonetheless, he's also bringing mercy to millions. So that by the end of chapter 7, John sees the outcome of the work of these men in the form of an uncountable number of believers from everywhere on earth, present in heaven. And as such, it really reflects not only the great success these men have had in reaching the world, but it also indicates that ultimately those believers are martyred, for they are in the heavenly realm as John sees them. They're the ones who you saw earlier in the fifth seal, the souls under the altar asking for vengeance for their death. So the Antichrist's appetite for waging war is matched only by his ruthless persecution of believers during this time. And so we learned, as that chart shows, that the consequential effects of the rise of the Antichrist is death, both for the unbelievers through war and for the believers through persecution. And that's what chapter 7 showed us. So that chapter interrupted, as it were, the narrative of the book of Revelation in the context of all the judgments piling on. You know, there was a series of them and then this interruption in chapter 7 to give us the the background, the context for some of these other events. And that tells us that chapter 7 is not chronologically in line with these judgments. It's not as though the first six seal judgments happened and then chapter 7 happened and then the trumpet judgments. No, it's not like that at all. Chapter 7 is a step out of that sequence, to show you that there was other stuff in the background the whole time. In fact, not just in the whole time of the seal judgments, but the whole time through all of tribulation. The martyrdom never ends, all the way to the end of the seven years. So this is backdrop. And it's the plan of God. Vengeance will eventually come, despite the fact that martyrdom is coming for the believer. And I think this moment was given in the book so that those who live in that future generation of believers, those who, while in tribulation, pick up this book and read about the events that they themselves are experiencing. There will be this chapter early in the account to give them some encouragement, to let them know that, first of all, martyrdom is nothing to be afraid of. In fact, if you keep reading the book, martyrdom is preferable to what is coming. And I think this chapter is something of a Psalm 23, if you will, for the believer who lives through and into tribulation. And then finally, the sixth seal, which we ended with last week, it marks the first time that the Lord brought supernatural destruction upon the earth. That's that final seal sitting out there on the right by itself. He darkens the sun, the moon turns red, he brings meteors raining down on the earth, he shakes the world with earthquakes, he he, he creates such massive destruction that we're told every mountain and island is moved, which is hard to understand. But it's the first time, amongst all of the stuff that's happened to this point, it's the first time humanity has finally come to, understood, uh, to understanding that the world destruction that they're experiencing is all the result of an angry God, where before that it may not have been so clear. And now that brings us to the next wave of judgments, the trumpet judgments. And as I explained last time, The trumpet judgment, sort of like that Russian uh, nesting doll example I gave you, the seventh seal, which is the one we have yet to, to hear about, the seventh seal, the last of the seals, is actually the next wave of judgments. So opening the seventh seal is the seven trumpet judgments. It is not a separate destruction of its own. And so we move to that now in the beginning of chapter Eight. So let's read there, chapter 8, verse 1. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar, holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him, so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne." And the smoke of the incense and the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. So chapter 8 opens with the breaking of the seventh seal. And as you note, it has this profound effect in heaven. John says there's a period of silence in heaven that lasts about half an hour. Now that period serves to underscore just how awesome and profound the judgments that are coming will be. I like to compare it to that moment that every parent knows when you have that 18 month old who's running and they trip and fall and they face plant on the ground. And then there's that moment of silence. And the longer the silence the worse the cry is going to be when it finally comes out of the baby right? And so you're all just waiting for that. It's coming, it's coming and and it comes. That's in a sense what you feel here isn't it? That breaking of the seventh seal is going to unleash such a terrible series of judgments, things we can barely imagine, Uh, the culmination of all that the prophets have said would happen, Uh, the bringing of an end to the storyline of this age, and the triggering of a new age for everyone and everything. So like childbirth, the bringing of that new thing has to come through a a period of painful trial. And this, this silence is the prologue. For that time. Uh, we hear how bad this distress is in one quick verse out of Daniel chapter 12. Daniel says, now at that time and he's speaking of the time of the 70th 7 he says, now at that time Michael the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time and at that time your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued So, all heaven stays quiet for a time. That phrase, about half an hour, though, isn't it curiously vague? You know, we know that the Lord's word is always precise, every word is intended. So why the intentional vagary here? Why didn't he say 30 minutes? I can tell you why he didn't say 30 minutes, because that would have then prompted us to sit here and wonder what the meaning of 30 minutes was. Why 30 right? And that would have been a complete distraction from the point of it. The, the point of it here is not to try to dwell on the length of time. The point of it is it's significantly long. You know, if I stopped talking for about 30 seconds, you'd be fidgeting at about that point. Imagine 30 minutes. Some of you are saying, I wish you would stop talking for 30 seconds. So this is simply to emphasize the magnitude of what's coming. And then you see seven angels preparing to bring the next judgments, the next wave of judgments. And they have a somewhat unique style, The trumpet judgments are split between judgments that impact the physical earth and judgments that impact the physical bodies of the people who live on earth. The first three of the seven judgments of trumpets will bring devastation to the earth, or whatever remains of it, and as a result, life becomes increasingly difficult and harsh because of what these judgments do. And then the second three make life truly, utterly miserable for everyone who lives on the earth. Uh, those final three judgments that affect the physical body of each person, they're so terrible that they have, your, they have their own name. They're, they're called out specifically. They're called the woe judgments. And the word woe in the Bible uh, is a word for eternal condemnation. And so what we're saying is these judgments are effectively a preview of what eternal judgment is like for those who live on earth. I'll explain that more here in a moment. Meanwhile, before the judgment begins, God receives, it says, the prayers of the saints, which is pictured by incense uh, before the throne. Who's praying to him at this point? Well, the believers on earth, obviously. And what do we assume about what their prayers are about? What would you be praying about? Protection, defense, relief from what you're experiencing? Maybe for the opportunity for a good witness in the face of almost certain martyrdom. And as you're going to see at the judgments that follow, particularly the woe judgments, the Lord hears those prayers. So finally, these judgments are announced with trumpets. Why trumpets? Why are we talking about a trumpet here? We Remember the, the land deed that we looked at in chapter 6 and the seals associated with it, it made some sense. It wasn't just an arbitrary symbol. There was a reason why it was a land deed being opened. The deed to Israel's land, the deed to the earth, Jesus himself now as judge taking ownership of it. What about trumpets? Well, trumpets are instruments of warning. And these set these judgments, the judgments of trumpets, are putting the world on notice that the end is near. That as we approach the midpoint of tribulation, the Lord is announcing that this is the end of the judgments. Each judgment is like a warning blast of a trumpet reminding the world time is running out, your opportunity is running out, And let me show you the timeline of where these judgments fall relative to what we've seen so far. And these are not meant to be precise moments in time, just relative. So if this is the first half of tribulation, which is where we still are. So tribulation is seven years. We're in the first three and a half years. And the seals obviously begin the whole period. We started that and they roll for a time. A couple of those judgments, like the ones under the altar, that's really just a reflection of martyrdom throughout the time of tribulation. But in general, they correspond to the beginning events. And then the trumpets kick in at some point after that, but they too finish in the first half of tribulation. And we'll see more of that as we get further into the book. So in some pace, at some rate, they're playing out as well toward the back half of the first half of tribulation. And they will finish, all but the seventh trumpet will finish before we finish the first half of tribulation, before we get to mid-trib. All right, we'll study the timeline more thoroughly as we move, particularly when we get to mid-trib, timeline starts to become a much bigger issue when we get to the mid middle tribulation chapters. For now, that's enough. Let's go back to the text. Let's look at these trumpet judgments, starting with the first one. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth, and there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. Now, this is a a bit of a prelude. Right before the seven trumpets are going to be blown, before the first one is blown, there's this preparatory step. All of the judgments are preceded by a display in the heavens and another earthquake. Now, remember what the Olivet Discourse told us. Earthquakes would be one of the signs that tell us we're moving toward the end, and they would keep getting worse, as would the famines. And by the way, learning what we did about the seal judgments and the way it wrecks havoc with the earth and with the economy and everything else, we understand how famines are going to get worse as well, right? And here's an example of the earthquakes continuing to be a warning. In this case, the earthquake is a warning that the trumpet judgments are about to start, which themselves are a warning that the end is near. You can't blame God for not warning. All right, now the trumpet. The first one in verse 7. Sorry. There we go. Getting a little ahead of myself. The first sounded and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and they were thrown to the earth and a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. So at the sound of the first trumpet, here you see the first wave of the trumpet judgments affecting the earth and so we're told one third of the earth is burned up from a judgment of hail, fire, and blood falling from the sky clearly a supernatural judgment in fact this is sort of classic biblical judgment right? this is this is the thing of you know CGI in movies Hell, you know, fire and brimstone coming down from heaven but it should also remind you that God has done similar things in the past and in particular one set of judgments really starts to become uh, a, a key in this you start to remember a, a set of judgments that are very similar to this and those would be the ones in exodus Remember this? You might remember this out of the story of Exodus. In 9.23 it says, Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire, ran down to the earth, and the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. So there was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very severe, such as not had been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. All right, They're very close, aren't they? Very similar. And that similarity between the first trumpet judgment and the pla- that particular plague of the, of the Exodus Uh, That is more than coincidental Uh, throughout the trumpet judgments. There is a loose parallel going on here between them and what happened in the Exodus throughout all of the judgments of tribulation because one is picturing the other. Let me show you how. Uh, In typical biblical form, you have the earlier judgments of the Exodus acting as a picture or a lesser of a greater fulfillment in tribulation. And it goes deeper than just the fact that the judgments look alike. For example, in the Exodus, what was the purpose of it all? Well, Israel was in bondage to a foreign nation. Remember that? And in those days, God was setting free his firstborn from that bondage. Well, what will be true in the time of tribulation? We will have Israel in bondage to the enemy and to sin generally, unbelief, in other words. In the Exodus, the Lord brought them out of Egypt through a series of supernatural judgments. And in the tribulation, he's going to deliver Israel from spiritual bondage into faith through a series of even greater judgments. In the Exodus, their freedom was ultimately, uh, uh, if you will, met by the law, made possible, if you will, by the law. The law given through that covenant that God gave through Moses, the lawgiver, was the means by which the nation was brought together. It was the basis for which they left. Remember, Moses told Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. It was all about leading them to that moment. And in tribulation, the people of Israel will first return to the law to worship in their temple, which will then prepare their hearts to receive what God has for them later. So going to the law is a means by which they move out of slavery and eventually to where God is bringing them. And in the Exodus, where was he bringing them? Well, in the Exodus, they were led by, ultimately, Yeshua, which is Joshua, into the promised land. And in the case of tribulation, they'll be led by Yeshua into the kingdom. So there's a clear parallel here. God did for Israel as a nation once, in a lesser form, what he will do for them in a greater way in a day to come. All right, moving to the first judgment. John tells us that a third of the earth is going to be burned up. But what does it mean, a third? There's a couple of ways you could interpret that, right? Should we suppose that it's one contiguous piece of the land of the earth, one third of the earth is affected, the other two thirds left alone? Or is that one third sort of evenly distributed across the planet? Which of the two? Well, As we go further into these judgments and into further chapters of the book of Revelation, what you're going to find is that it's apparent God is doing something very particular here. And as such, the answer is it's one contiguous section of the earth. So it may not look exactly like that, I can't promise. (laughs) But there'll be a part of the earth burned up. This is the first of a series of judgments in which God is whittling away at the inhabitable land of the earth. And for reasons that become clearer later, especially in chapters 17 and 18, you'll understand why he's doing this, but we'll begin to talk about it tonight. And you'll see it more clearly in the next uh, trumpet judgment. The pattern continues. Verse 8, The second angel sounded and something like a great mountain, burning with fire, was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the creatures, which were in the sea and had life, died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Right, John says he sees something like a, a great mountain uh, with fire falling into the sea. So we're going to put this globe up, a little different one. Now, we don't know what the great mountain was, right? We don't know uh, whether he was seeing something like a meteor or whether he was seeing something less, um, or some have suggested it was a volcano. But it's fair to assume if he had been seeing something like that, a meteor, a volcano, those things existed in John's day, and he would have recognized them as such. The fact that he doesn't know what he's looking at would seem to suggest that it's something altogether different, unnatural, supernatural. And then when you look at the effect of it, it really confirms for us that it's something supernatural. Don't try to find a natural explanation for this thing, because when it hits the water, it turns the water to blood. Volcanoes and meteors don't do that, and nothing else we know does that. So this is another judgment to remind us of Exodus, Remember, the Nile turned to blood. It's just this is a much bigger event than than what you saw in Exodus. Here again, a lesser to a greater fulfillment now. And by the way, if you wondered if this is at all symbolic or metaphoric, the text eliminates that possibility because John says literally that the blood kills the fish, which is exactly what you see happening in the Nile. And it also results in ships on that body of water being lost as well. And that detail really emphasizes the literal nature of this. It's truly what happened. Something fell and turned a third of these seas to blood, miles deep of blood from where there's sea today. We know that this little detail about the ship would emphasize the literal interpretation because blood has a specific gravity that is higher than water, which means that it produces a greater buoyancy if anything is floating in it. So if the ship was first floating in the seas and then suddenly that sea turns to blood, it's going to rise up in the blood because the blood is going to give it more buoyancy and then it's going to be unstable at that height in the, in the fluid. It's going to topple over. It's going to capsize. So any ship that would be sitting on blood is not going to float properly. It's designed to float on water. Plus the ship's systems would be fouled by the intake of blood for you know cooling engines. and I mean, it would be a mess. So we know it's literal. Now... Notice again, John says this judgment impacts a third of the seas. Now here we go with that question. A third meaning one contiguous area of water or spread around the world. Here's where you get your confirmation that he's talking about contiguous areas of the earth. Because just as the land, it was one section and not all over. Here we know it has to be one section and not all over. I defy you to turn one third of a glass of water into blood. At the moment you put one third of blood in there, it's just... Watery blood everywhere, right? It doesn't stay in one-third. Water mixes. So the only way you could have one-third of the water's blood and the rest not is if it's a contained body of water, something of the way the seas of the earth are sectioned off by the land. Obviously, water flows between seas, so in time, eventually, yes, it would dilute, but not very quickly. And the whole point is, for the time we have in tribulation, effectively, it stays where it is. So that would tell us that he's always been talking here about a section of the world being blocked off. And as such, it begins to drive us to the conclusion of why. Why is God working in this way, cutting off patches of the globe? Well, it's because of the point God is making through this, and it comes out, as I said, in further teaching. Over the course of the judgments of tribulation, the Lord is going to narrow the focus of the world down to just the region of the Middle East. Think of it something like this. Through a series of judgments, the world will become increasingly uninhabitable but for this little patch of earth. And it's because in this one place on the earth, the culminating events of tribulation take place. The final battles will take place. The territory between Jerusalem and Babylon will become ground zero. And in that space, you will see a battle between east and west, good and evil, Jesus And Satan, so to speak, and it's not a fair fight. So in preparation for that climactic war, the Lord sets about eliminating all life on the rest of the planet, step by step, so that by the time the battle ensues toward the end of the seven years, there is nothing else. There will be no one else. There is nowhere else. Nothing that matters, nothing that's alive, all attention on earth focused on this climactic little period, and it's why all the activity of the War of Armageddon happens in that area. It's the only area. You can't be anywhere else. There is nowhere else. And we know Israel and Babylon remain intact because we see them mentioned all the way through the final events of tribulation. And not coincidentally, nowhere else is mentioned. Everybody asks me, what about the United States in tribulation? You want to know what happens to the United States in tribulation? Well, it's interesting. The landmass that is directly opposite Israel is North and South America. And since we know that Babylon and Jerusalem are at the end and the last piece is remaining, it would seem to suggest that the Lord begins destruction on the opposite side of the planet and then proceeds around from there. And as the judgments progress, he just progressively consumes more land and more ocean until all you're left is the Middle East. And not coincidentally, as it turns out, North America, want to guess how much of the land of the planet North and South America represent? Exactly 30%. So what that tells us is, I'm telling you my, my assumption, but I think it's accurate, this initial trumpet judgment results in that. And which ocean, more or less, is opposite Israel and, by the way, also represents exactly 30% of the water on the face of the planet? It's actually the Pacific Ocean. So the Pacific Ocean is the largest body of water on the earth and it's also 30% of the earth's water. So he starts on our side of the planet, more or less, certainly the landmass. So how important are we to the events of tribulation? We're a footnote. He gets us out of the way early. And... It's always been that way. The nations of the Middle East are what matters for what God is doing there. I assume that the first and second trumpet judgments bring an end to these regions of the earth. If I'm wrong by which one he picks first, it doesn't matter. The point is he's going to move around till there's nothing but Middle East left. Okay. By the way, this would prove that we don't need to put too much effort into saving the planet. It's not savable. <laughs> Having said that, don't throw your trash out the window, but I'm just saying... You know, spend your time wisely, I guess is what I'm saying. I'm going to get a letter for that, I know. Uh, Verse 10. The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters. The name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. All right, the third trumpet blows now with it comes the third and final judgment against the face of the planet. Remember, we're still on the first three, so these are the ones that affect the land. John says, a great burning, quote, star falls from heaven into the fresh waters now, turning them bitter. The name of that star is Wormwood, and that word has no other meaning in Greek. Wormwood doesn't have a meaning, but by the context, it's assumed to mean bitter. And in trying to interpret what this star is, remember we've always had this issue, every time the word star is used as some kind of symbol, we come back to the question, of how do you know what the symbol means? And in every case, it's been the same answer. The context drives us to the answer. And in this case, let's work with the, through the possibilities for a moment. Uh, could it be a literal star? And by that I mean the celestial kind, a burning sun. Well, for the same reason that it couldn't have been one earlier in chapter 6, well, it can't be one here because a sun many, many times larger than the earth, couldn't possibly impact the earth. It would burn us up in a fraction of a second. So it's not that kind of star. Um, could it be a meteor, which is what we concluded was true at the end of chapter 6? A falling star, in other words. Well, you could, except they're not known to make fresh waters bitter. Plus you have a problem here because it's impacting a third of the fresh water around the planet. This, is, this one breaks our pattern when it comes to thirds. Because there's no place on earth where a third of the fresh water exists. And so the statement in context says waters, springs of waters, third of the rivers. It's clear that it's a distribution here because that's the nature of fresh water. It's not all in one place. So it's being affected wherever it is. But that just adds to the supernatural component. What could hit the world in one place and yet only affect fresh water and do it all over the world? You know, that's not a natural event. So... That tells us we're not looking at a meteor or a sun. What's left? Well, the only other symbolic meaning of star in the Bible beyond those two would be angel. And when you see it named as it is here, Wormwood, that indicates also a personage. So that would help reinforce the interpretation. This is an angel. But in Scripture, angels can have two kinds of names. There are those angels that are named in a way that glorifies God, Gabriel, that is, man of God. Michael, that is, who is like God. El is the name of God. So uh, those are names that reflect well on God, and then you can have angels whose names suggest corruption and a fallen nature. Uh, here, Wormwood, later in this chapter, uh, Abaddon. So there are names that don't sound very attractive, and when you see those, that's a fallen angel, or as we might say, a demon. And so here you see a demon, an angel, symbolized as a star, Sent by God to do his bidding. And the effect of the demon is to poison a third of the fresh waters on the earth. And it just proves what you should have known already, which is God can use anything. Nothing in his creation is outside his control. And in this case, he can use a demonic agent when it suits his purposes, as he does here. And he uses it in this case to bring judgment. And in fact, that becomes a new pattern. And increasingly, we're going to see not just angels serving God in all of these judgments, but now demons themselves being called to service by God to bring about these calamities. All right, let's go to the fourth angel. The fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were struck, so that a third of them would be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it and a night in the same way. Well, we have our theme of thirds continuing here. A third of the sun, moon, and stars being targeted here. But it's a little confusing at first. I mean, what it, Does this mean like a third of the sun is gone? Or a third of the moon? Or a third of the stars leave the sky? Uh, or does it mean that their light output is dimmed by a third? You know, like you've kind of turned it down a little bit. Is that what it means? Well, John's Statement would seem to indicate a third version of those. Not the first two I mentioned, but a third one. In John's interpretation, he says that each body shines for one-third less time. In other words, the lights go out entirely for one-third of the time that they would normally shine. Because he he says there at the end of verse 12, the day would not shine for one-third of it, and the night would not shine for one-third of it. So, cumulatively, that means the Earth is receiving one third less light and energy from the Sun and the stars. So, it goes from this to that for a period of time, and then it comes back again. By the way, that makes perfect sense astrologically, because uh, in terms of astronomy, rather, in terms of astronomy, you would expect that if the Sun goes out for us on the daylight side of the Earth, the Moon's going out for the other side of the Earth at the nighttime and conversely when they're getting their light turned off during their day we're getting our moon turned off at the same time both for a third cumulatively that's a third of a 24 hour day between the two of them the math works perfectly all right so and this is before copernicus this is before anybody at least as far as we know was talking about a solar system in which the earth and the moon were rotating and revolving and you know all the rest we take it for granted but it's a good example of the science of the bible being ahead of the science of humanity that this would be written this way. All right, what's the effect of this? Well, we can imagine a total blackout of all the universe for a third of each 24-hour day. Besides the fear factor of that, it would lead to a dramatic drop in temperature on Earth. As you probably have heard, the Earth is perfectly balanced in its current orbit for the amount of heat to keep us in a, 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 a kind of state of habitation that's perfectly suited to us. You don't take out a third of that energy and not see a huge impact. It's like the nuclear winter, winter scenario that you've heard people talk about where there's no sun, sunlight for such a long period of time. It's, it's a new ice age. Crops fail. You know, plants can't live without the amount of sunlight they're expecting. Water sources would freeze. Livestock would die. Now, remember, we've already seen a fourth of the world's population dead from war and pestilence and starvation and we had some unknown number of additional lives lost when all those continents were burned up and the fresh water became bitter and people were dying from that. And then the seas and the, you know, all of the death, that's already piled up. And now you have a third less heat and light, and that's even more loss of life. I mean, the people who are still alive at this part, point in time, they're pretty hardy people. They're clinging to life at this point. And so those who do survive in all of this, how hard is life for them right now? It, the effect must be something like a little mini hell on earth. Uh, the point is the earth has become increasingly inhospitable for human life, and that should trigger amongst all the population that's remaining some thought about what comes next, about death, about eternity, about the matters at hand, right? And meanwhile, you got the Antichrist continuing to conquer even as the world that he desires is becoming increasingly undesirable, and along the way, you have 144,000 continuing to preach the gospel. And I would imagine finding a pretty receptive audience <laughs> to the message of salvation at this point. And then finally, we move to the second half of the Trumpet judgments, but not before there is a brief suspension for another warning. Verse 13. Then I looked and I heard an eagle flying in midheaven saying with a loud voice, "Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. We're told an eagle is flying in mid-heaven. Now the term mid-heaven requires a, a moment of explanation. The Jewish people did not have distinctive Hebrew words for three different places. The sky, outer space, and the heavenly throne room of God were all called by the same Hebrew word, shamayim, which just translates as heavens. So you had heavens for all three. And in order to avoid confusion, in order to distinguish between them, they came up with a convention of numbering these spaces in a way that distinguished them. They'd start with the ground and then move up, numbering from there. So the first of those spaces, the atmosphere where birds fly, the first heaven. And then above that, the second heaven, or as they would call it sometimes, mid-heaven. That's where the planets and the solar system is. And then there's the third heaven, which is where God's throne room is. So it's a convention of Hebrew that they came up with these terms. Paul uses the third heaven reference, you might remember, in 2 Corinthians, and it's just a way of him speaking as a Jew about the heavenly throne room of God. Now, in this case, John says there's an eagle flying in mid-heaven, which presents an immediate problem, because that's outer space, and that's not where eagles fly. Um, furthermore, this eagle is speaking to the world in human language, so that would also argue against a literal interpretation. So it would appear as though this is yet again another angel, we would assume. What else would it be? Uh, something sent by God, a messenger, which is what angels are, moving back and forth, and maybe he calls it an eagle, either because it may have looked like one to him, or because for him it was a easier way of explaining what the angel was doing, circling around like a vulture or an eagle would do. And it's declaring that the final three trumpets are coming, the final woe, woe, woes are coming. And as I mentioned earlier, these are directed at the physical bodies of people instead of uh, the physical earth. And the term woe means something of great importance, the most terrible, uh, but its connection to judgment is important here. If you look back at our earlier chart on the relationship of the seal judgments to the trumpet judgments. I told you that the final seal judgment is all the trumpet judgments. But then within the trumpets, those last ones that affect people are so bad, they get pulled out separately. And they're called the woe judgments. The last two trumpets and the seventh trumpet, which is the bowl judgments. So all of the bowl judgments is the third woe. The other two are separate. Follow that? All right. So... The fifth, sixth, and seventh judgments are what we're going to study now. Obviously, the seventh one, which is the bull judgments, doesn't come until quite a ways from now. But we do the first two. And that takes us now to the first. We'll go to do the first of those now, beginning in chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 1. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. He opened the bottomless pit. And smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and power was given to them, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God in their foreheads. And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And the torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, and death flees from them. All right, well, this is the first of the woe judgments, clearly different than anything we've seen this far. And as the earlier four trumpet judgments began, so does this one with a trumpet blast sounding a warning. And then it unfolds with a star again falling from earth. Later, you notice in verse 1, John describes this star as a hymn. And then you look at the actions of the star picking a key, opening a pit. All of that suggests a personage again. So we quickly run to the same conclusion we did earlier. This is an angel, a star meaning an angel. Falling, in this case, falling to earth would reinforce that this is a fallen angel. And then the name, which you'll get later in verse 11, Abaddon or Apoyon, uh, that word means destroyer in Greek. Well, that all goes to emphasize this is a fallen angel, or we'll call it a demon. So here you have a demon serving God's purposes again. This demon is given a key to a place called the bottomless pit, John says, which means God has given this demon permission to set free those who are up until that moment held in that pit, and it's described as bottomless. We see it being accessed through the earth because that's where the angel had to call me had to fall to the earth to get to the pit, and the word for bottomless, abusos in Greek, it's also the word we get abyss from. So it's the abyss pit, the bottomless pit. Uh, all of this is referring to the same place that you hear referenced elsewhere in the scripture, a place of the holding of disobedient spirits. The most common term in the Old Testament for this place is Sheol, or also the pit. For example, in Job thirty-three twenty-eight, he says, "He God has redeemed my soul from going to the pit. Speaking of this very same place. According to Luke 16, if you know the story where Jesus talks about the rich man, and Lazarus, the poor man, who dies at his gate, etc. Where they end up is a place that has two sides. It's called Sheol in the Old Testament. But in this place, in the Old Testament, you had souls that stayed on one side that was pleasant. That's the side in which saints were sent. And then you had the side that was unpleasant, to say the least. That's where the souls of unbelievers went, and you couldn't cross between them. And when the Lord resurrected, when he died and he resurrected, that made a way now for anyone who was in Christ, that is of faith, to join him in the heavenly throne room, because now the price for sin had been paid. And at that moment, that good side of Sheol was emptied. The souls of believers who had been waiting for the Messiah now could join the Messiah in heaven, because he had already died for them by that point. And on the other hand, those who were on the bad side, as I might call it, Hades or hell, they remain there and still are there even now. That's the side of the pit that has not been emptied yet, that holds the souls of those who die without Christ, without faith. And later we learn in the New Testament that this place has, for lack of a better way of saying it, a special corner, a special place within it, a prison, in which the souls of disobedient angels are held separate from where the spirits of disobedient humans go. Peter says this in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, Speaking of the flood story, he says, If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, into Hades, and committed them to pits of darkness within Hades, reserved for judgment, being held there for judgment. And he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah and so on. The point is that those are the angels who we believe in chapter 6 mated with women to create the, the race of Nephilim, which then became the basis for the flood. And when God dealt with them, he dealt with them by saying, these angels were too disobedient. They were demons already. They were already fallen and already following Satan. But they, did, they went beyond the limits of what God would allow. And so as a result of what they did, they were held in this prison in Hades. And then Jesus says this in Luke chapter 8, verse 30. He says, speaking to a man who was indwelled by demons... He says, what is your name? And the demons said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they were imploring Jesus not to command them to go into the abyss. Now think about that for a minute. These demons remember what happened to their compadres when they inhabited or tried to mate, rather, with women. And so now they're in this guy, Legion, as they call themselves. They see the Jesus coming and they begin to wonder, maybe this is another moment like back in the flood story. We've gone too far and the judge has come and he's going to make us go to the abyss. And they ask us, don't make us go, are you? Don't make us go to the abyss like our, our counterparts did. Now Jesus didn't do it in that case. But that just goes to show the demons understand that as bad as things are for them now, roaming the earth, waiting for heaven, waiting for their judgment one day, it can get worse for them. God can put them in this prison for a time called the the abyss, called the pit. And just to be clear, by the way, not all demons are in the abyss, obviously. Most of them are not. Most of them are allowed to roam and they do what they do. But the ones who are the most terrible have been confined there to limit their rampage. Now, in this judgment, time has come for the Lord to permit the worst of the worst to escape from that temporary confinement. The chief demon, it would appear, is given permission to let them loose. And it would seem that a poion, abaddon, or destroyer, would be none other than Satan himself. I'm not sure that that's true. In other words, I can't prove that to you. But we know from Matthew 25 that Jesus says he is the master of the demons. Uh, The fact that he's called the destroyer here would seem to add weight to that conclusion. And the fact that he's even got the privilege to open the pit. What other demon would be more appropriate? In any event, once he opens this pit, the demons inside are set loose like rabid dogs let off of a chain. They come out of the pit raging. They've been confined there for thousands of years. They are undoubtedly eager to wreak havoc on the earth again after they've had their, their chance to be set free. We're told here as the pit is opened, the smoke of this place rises to block the sunlight, John says. And what that does is confirm for us the Bible's testimony elsewhere that hell and the abyss, which seems to be a part of that place, are below our feet. They're in the earth. They're in the center of the earth. They're below our feet. You might wonder, could the lava that erupts from the earth from time to time be connected to the activities of hell? And you know, before you laugh at suggestions like that, just remember that uh, the scientists of our world do not understand what's underneath our feet beyond a mile or two or three of, of the earth's crust. Uh, they don't have any understanding either. We just have the Bible saying that there's a place down there called the abyss, called the pit, a physical place of burning, a place that's hot and utterly dark, and now with the pit open, that darkness spills out metaphorically and otherwise. John says he sees what comes out of this place. He says he sees locusts descend upon the earth that have power like the power God gives to a scorpion. Now, presumably, they're being given power by God. In other words, you wouldn't say this is given to them by any other source. Their whole escape has been orchestrated by God as part of a judgment. So their power comes with specific instructions and specific limitations. Don't hurt the vegetation of the earth. Hence, we're moving on from that. This is not one of the woe judgments against the earth. This is a woe judgment against people. So stay away from the earth. Only go after the people. And uh, it's also true that they cannot hurt anyone fatally. All they can do is torment them for a period of time. By the way, this would argue against them being normal locusts, wouldn't it? Obviously, locusts don't torment. More importantly, they don't care about us. They want to eat the vegetation, so it, I think the comment here about the vegetation is emphasized perhaps so that our interpretation will understand we're not looking at natural things right now. All right? So here we have something that is purely unnatural that will go after the mankind and do so to torment, but there was another exception made, another instruction given. They could not hurt men that have been sealed on their foreheads. Scripture says that these are off-limits. Now, we remember, obviously, the 144,000 from chapter 7 that were sealed. We know they're, obviously, in view here. But I think there's a larger message here because Scripture says God will not appoint His children to wrath and that He knows how to distinguish the godly from the ungodly when He brings judgments. For example, we know that in Second Peter, it says here, "...the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment." or said more simply, he discriminates. He discriminates in where judgment falls and where mercy falls. So the 144,000 are obviously included. They will not suffer any of these judgments. The stinging will not come upon them. And I would go so far as to say, for the same reason, those who have been led to faith by these men will likewise be excluded. And so it's presumable that they too are sealed. Remember, the seal does not have to be visible. That's not the meaning of it. The point of it is that it's the sealing of the Holy Spirit. So those who have come to faith are likewise likewise preserved from this. It would make no sense for God to torment someone who's come to faith in this way. It serves no purpose. All right. Now, this is the first time there has been an exception to any of the judgments that we know of. And so when we look at this, we need to apply it very carefully. You would not take this statement, that is, the ceiling prevents the pain of this judgment. You would not take that and then conclude that, oh, you see, if you're a believer on earth, none of the judgments will affect you. That would be a leap in conclusion. All we know is this one does not affect the believer, and it makes logical sense that it would not have been the other ones, because the other ones affected the planet, And as such, I think anyone who's on the planet is going to be impacted by it. But these are affecting the person of an individual, and those are then discriminated one from another. So now as they target people, they will only affect the unbeliever. By the way, the Lord's done this in the past. You remember stories like Noah and his family, right? Some people on the boat, the rest not. Lot and his family. Some saved, the rest not, right? God knows how to figure out who can get saved and how to do it. Uh, There's even the story in Ezekiel in which God has saved uh, the people of Israel by sealing them from the judgment of, a, of an angel when he goes into the city to destroy all the ungodly. You can study that in the Ezekiel study. In any event, let's look at the torment. John says the torment that these, I'm going to call them demons, because I believe that's the consistent interpretation of this, what we see in this context, coming out of the pit and all, these demons will inflict something that I think is frankly hard to comprehend. Uh, unlike prior judgments, they, they don't hurt the earth, they only go after the body, but what they do on the body is, is unbelievable, inflicting painful stings for a total of five months. Now, John says it's like the pain of a scorpion sting. If you don't think that's bad, scorpions are notoriously painful stings relative to their size. They're not fatal, usually, which is consistent with this picture, but the toxins in scorpion venom are so toxic that they're used in chemotherapy. Chemotherapy to kill cancer cells, and the discomfort of this is magnified many, many times by the fact that it's continual. I mean, if you got gotten by, stung by one once, it hurt, you kind of got over it, put some ice on it, it went away, but imagine having that all over your body constantly for five months. You can't even begin to understand how that feels, right? I, imagine living five months with scorpions continuously crawling under your clothing, stinging you. Yeah, that, that kind of made the point, didn't it? It's just impossible to imagine the physical and psychological effects of enduring five months of such attacks. We know it lasts five months because we read it, but let me suggest this to you. I don't know that the people who are experiencing realize it has a limit. I don't think that they're told it's five months, not unless they're reading their Bible, and if they're reading their Bible, they would probably not have been in that situation. So as you contemplate the fate of endless stinging, you might see how it would lead someone to contemplate suicide, right? An otherwise sane person might very well be willing to end their life rather than to face another day of that pain, especially if they don't understand it will end in five months, if they think it might be forever. But then the Lord, anticipating that desire, adds this particularly horrible twist to this judgment. The option to die by any means is removed by God during these five months. John says, verse 6, men will eventually seek to end their lives rather than suffer in the judgment, and God will supernaturally prevent it. It's kind of intriguing to imagine how that's even possible. I mean, is he making them immortal, like Superman? I mean, what if they throw themselves in fire or blow themselves up with a bomb? or right? How is it even possible that they don't die? My theory is this, and it doesn't require a lot of you know, supernatural kind of stuff, th- I, I think he simply incapacitates them to the point where th- they're writhing in pain all day long, all night long. they don 't have the strength to get up, much less harm themselves, and should they even get close to the act of it, he foils it somehow. the gun doesn't go off. The, you know the noose doesn't tighten. whatever they're doing that they might figure out how to do doesn't work. He just says it eludes them so. How much suffering does a person have to experience before they're at the point of seeking for that kind of an outcome? The literal Greek there, when John says they will long to die, the literal Greek word there is the word for crave. They crave death. Now, we're going to come back to considering this issue of what God is doing here for just a moment, but let's just do one more thing on the text first, and then we'll come back, because John gives us a description of these creatures And I want to use that as a moment to explore what they might be from what we see elsewhere. First of all, verse 7. The appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like the hair of a woman, and their teeth were like the teeth of lions. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing to battle. They have tails like scorpions and stings, and in their tails is the power to hurt men for five months. They have as king over them the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he has the name Apoyon. So he's been calling them scorpions. Now, we already know these aren't true scorpions. First, they originate from a place of demons and dead souls. And I, look, no matter how much you dislike scorpions, I can assure you that they do not come out of the pit. They're just natural now, I, don't, I can't say the same thing about poodles. I have a suspicion on those. But we know these aren't scorpions because of where they come from. Secondly, uh, they don't sting like ordinary scorpions, right? Ordinary scorpions don't sting you constantly for five months. Uh, I mean, these things are not natural, clearly. Um, and as he describes them, they don't look like any scorpion or locust you've ever seen. John says they look like horses prepared for battle. Here's one person's rendition of... I guess what this could be looking like, heads like men, hair like women, teeth like lion. He says they wear a crown, Stephanos again, that in- indicates they have authority in the demonic realm. They have wings that make a great noise, they have tails like scorpions again, power to hurt men, and so on. When you look at the whole description, it kind of explains clearly why John uh, appropriated words like locust or scorpion or something. I mean, he was trying to stretch for what could I tell you this look like? What do I have as a reference point for you? Right? The tail on this thing is the most prominent feature, and so that's the thing that tied his mind to a scorpion, it would seem. But if you put the whole package together, it's completely un- you know, outside this world. Now, this particular area of Revelation, maybe more than most, has become ripe for speculation. There is a certain, uh, I don't call it a community, that's probably too formal, there's a certain way of thought that's out there in which you get to a book like Revelation and there's something inside us that just longs to bring it to the present world. And so we're searching for something of our world that we could compare the description to, and if we find something we think matches, then we make that an interpretation, which is a leap in logic, to be sure. That is, you say, not only is it like something of our world, it must be the something of our world. Forgetting, of course, the fact that this could be a long way off, and never mind all the supernatural, you know, parts of it, they start grasping at straws. And here's an example of what people have tried to say these scorpions might be like. Now let me just point out, that is not biblical interpretation. (laughs) That is a circus, a sideshow, and speculation. That is not how you learn anything. I'm not saying the person who did this this was an evil person. I'm saying that person doesn't know how to read the Bible. Because that's not how you find the truth. You don't back into the answer by looking in your world for something that matches something that's said to happen in the far distant future in an entirely different set of circumstances. That is an unnecessary and bizarre comparison, right? When you look at what goes on in the text, there is no earthly comparison. First of all, Apache helicopters do not come out of the pit. Uh, they do not result in five-month-long or 5 month long stinging sensations on the people that they attack. Uh, considering the amount of damage that's being done to the earth prior to this moment, It's inconceivable that any mechanical equipment is still functioning. Where is the gasoline coming from for this thing? Or the the jet fuel? Where is the landing strip that's still on the earth that hasn't been crushed by earthquakes? I mean, where in the world? Look, friends, at this point in the world, everything is in ruins. Technology is gone there's no electricity. There's no running water. People have been reduced to being vagabonds and refugees. They're lucky they're even alive. They're living in caves saying, rocks, please fall on us. I mean, the, the, who's flying these things anyway? Everyone's got stings going on. Nobody's able to do anything. Right? I'm just kind of, you know, obviously I'm, I'm upset. <laughs> I, just, I, I, I just, it's more funny than anything, but I just find it strange that we feel like we need this to make sense of this, it's supernatural. It's bizarre because it's God doing things he's never done before. Stop looking for an earthly explanation for things that are clearly supernatural. These are demon hordes released from the pit with an appearance that is altogether terrifying, unlike anything you've ever seen, something like a scorpion on steroids, and the effect they have is incomparable to anything else. Um, one of the other arguments for why these are demons, obviously, is the fact that they reach every last person on earth. No one can hide. You can bury yourself underground, you can hide in your closet, they find you. Because demons can go through walls. Demons can go through any barrier. They're not limited by physical structures. All right? So they have the knowledge and the ability to find every flesh and blood on earth, and they have the desire to do it, which is why God lets them loose, tormenting everyone. We might wonder also if people can actually see these things in the day. My guess is they're visible, but wouldn't it be even more terrifying if they're not? In a way, right? All of a sudden you're just tormented. All right, let's ask the fundamental question that ends the night here. Why does God bring a punishment like this, with all its detail, against the people of the earth? What good purpose could it possibly serve? You might even be tempted to think it's especially cruel given the fact that these people are forced to endure the torment, they can't even kill themselves to escape it. Well, if you think this is cruel, let me ask you a question. What would mercy look like under these circumstances? Should God let them die? If they died, what comes next for these people? Well, they would move from a temporary state of torture, of torment, into an eternal state of torture, of torture and torment, according to scripture. So in that sense, understanding that bigger picture, preventing them from dying under these circumstances is actually a form of grace. In fact, this five-month period is the first and only time in all human history since the garden in which death is impossible. For the first time since the beginning of humanity, not a single new resident of hell will be established for five months. It is a singular moment in history. Never before has anything like this happened. He is mercifully preventing death for everyone on the planet during these five months and for what good reason? So that they can get a taste of what hell is like without having to go there to experience it. And in that learning have one more opportunity because there's a time clock on this opportunity to know the Lord in tribulation. Evangelism doesn't last the whole seven years. It finishes much earlier than that. So the clock they have to come to faith is almost run out. And Jesus says in Luke 12, 4, I say to you, friends, don't be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So, Consider the nature of this judgment. They're being kept alive. They cannot die. They're in unending torment administered at the hands of demons. Sound familiar? That, my friends, is a close approximation of hell on earth. And so how many times have we wondered what the world would do if they just could get a foretaste of the judgment of hell? Wouldn't that help? the evangelistic movement of the church, right? Couldn't they all just snap to if they just saw what it would be like if they don't come to faith? Well, in effect, here's the chance to find out that, tr- that test. Will it work? And by the way, even the number of months that they're allowed to remain alive while being tormented, five, excuse me, five months, the number five in scripture, what is that the number of symbolically? Grace. It's a number of grace. And after five months, that first woe comes to an end. But Two more remain. As we read in verse 12, the first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming after these things. All right? We come back next week and we'll finish the next woe and move into the early chapters of mid-trib, which will start a whole new conversation for us. So let's go to prayer and then Q&A at the end. Heavenly Father, as I prayed at the outset, I do pray, Father, we would have an appreciation for how the severity of the times is matched by your mercy and goodness to those who must endure it. And, Father, we have to understand, I guess, that sometimes hard hearts require difficult and hard times. And, Father, we know that you can bring anyone to faith in your will. And if you choose to do it through these means, so be it, for the one who will be there will not complain in the end. And, Father, help us not to judge you in these things before we do not know what you know. Uh, Just help us to understand them and relate them in in ways that will not mask your love or overshadow the grace that you offer. And yet at the same time, may it be an instrument in our hands and your hands to uh, propel interest in the gospel from those who don't know it. Let us be useful to you in that work. Bring us back, as always, next week as we study again. In Jesus' name, amen.